This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 507. And the quote of the day is, if you want recognition, the first step is to actually do something worth recognition. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's up, boys and girls? Nick Ruffini here, episode 507 of the podcast. And these podcasts have been free for a very long time, and that's thanks to the great sponsors that we have. One of them being Dream Symbols, who've been with Drummer's Resource for a long time. And I urge you to check out their products. They make amazing sounding cymbals that don't break the bank. I promise you that they are priced well below the competitors. They sound amazing. And the people at Dream are just great people to work with, whether you're an artist or whether you're someone like me who's, you know, running this podcast and I deal with them on the regular. They're just they're just really good people, and it doesn't hurt that they make amazing sounding cymbals as well. So check them out, please. Go to dreamsymbols.com. Now, this conversation today is with Mel Brown, and Mel Brown, I had on the podcast a long time ago, so this is a, another re-release, and the reason why I'm re-releasing these is I, I want to dig into the into the archives and find episodes that I think are extremely important for career development, for, or, or there's particular things that get pulled out in each one of these conversations, and Mel's approach to getting gigs as a sideman is hands down the most effective way I've ever heard of anyone getting gigs, and his resume proves it. And I wanted to bring this out because this episode was recorded way back when. It was recorded uh, like five years ago. So all still relevant. You know, some of the stuff he, he talks about, like CDs and things like that, uh, that he, stuff that he did in the 90s. But all of the, the content is extremely relevant about his approach and about doing how he talks about like front loading all the work and doing the work before you get the gig and things like that. So extremely good, timeless info that I'm guessing that if you're new to the podcast, even if you're new, you know, if you started listening two years ago, you may not have listened to this episode. And I think it's an extremely important episode to listen to, packed with a ton of great practical information about how you can start getting more gigs, how you can start networking with the right people that you want to be networking with and and really build your career as a sideman, whether it be, you know, part-time, full-time or whatever, you know, anywhere in between. So dig into this with the one and only Mel Brown. Mel, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me, Nick. What's going on, bro? Not much, man. Not much. It is. Uh, it, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I, you know, just so the listeners know of how how um, I kind of got hooked up with you. I found your book online from Zero to Sideman a while ago. And turns out that we have some mutual friends through the DeFrancescos and everything. And I sent you a message and you were you were kind enough to to take a phone call with me. And the knowledge that you have about getting gigs and about how, um, you know, how these gigs actually happen really opened up my eyes about a lot of different things to where, you know, you're like, it's a lot more than just you're playing. It's all the other stuff that's that's outside of that. And I really, really want to get into all of the details and, and, and the dirt and the nitty gritty of, of how you got your gigs and, and how other people can get them as well. But let's, let's backtrack a little bit before that. Let's talk about first, 
a little bit about you and, and how you got into playing and then how you made that big jump from, like you say, from zero to side, man. All right. Well, first, thanks for having me. Absolutely, and, man. And uh, second, I think that's awesome that the in, that the information that I had for you was was helpful. And uh, and I appreciate you sharing it with all of your listeners. It's very, very cool. You know, it's funny. I watched the video of you on YouTube explaining the book a little bit. And I ha- I always had the same questions that you that you're like, oh, yeah, they say, well, then I just met this guy and I met this guy and we hit it off and I got the gig. And I was always like, yeah, but how did how did you meet that guy or how did you get in front? And then you literally said that in the, in the YouTube video and I'll put the YouTube video on the show notes. Uh, every pod, ha- every podcast has show notes, so it'll be on there for people to watch. But I was totally the same thing. It was like, wow, but how did you meet? How did you meet? these Oh guys? yeah. You know? That's, that's excellent. You know, what's funny is <clears throat> when I, I, I went to college for human resources and accounting. And when I got out of school, I had several, you know, really good jobs in the, in the corporate world, but Mm -hmm. I always wanted to play music. Right. And when, uh, I had been laid off. Had you been playing, but I mean, you've been playing for years before that, right? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really remember not playing. I remember being a very small child saying to my, to my parents that I played the bass Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know that I really knew what a bass did or, or, or how it worked or anything like that. But I could actually point to the bass player on television shows. And I would say to my parents that, Hey, that's, that's the one that I do. Right. And I could actually tell when they were really playing and when they were kind of, you know, lip syncing on their instruments. Like, you know, you watch American bandstand back then or watch soul train and you could tell if they really weren't playing. Right. So, you know, but uh, I, I don't ever remember not sort of claiming that mm-hmm. for myself. And uh, I've, I've always been interested. And then in junior high school, I was able to sort of take a guitar class. And it just kind of went from there. In elementary school, I had a music teacher loan me her bass and let nice. me take it home, which was, which was pretty cool on her part. Yeah. That was the first time I'd ever had a bass like at my house. And uh, but through the years, you know, you get in high school and jazz band and church and and you learn how to play you teach yourself how to play i i never was able to have lessons you know it wasn't okay. something that that was very very common but i had a lot of really great teachers and people take an interest in me and you know i cobbled something together and here it is right <laughs> <laughs> so the you you mentioned uh getting the gigs like how do you make those things happen when i when i left my corporate job the first thing that so you said you got you got laid off from your corporate job. I got laid off from like three corporate jobs, and then okay. I thought, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to try and be a musician. I may as well because right. musicians kind of work, and then they don't. If it's going to be like this, I may as well do what I love to do. Sure, and Take control, uh, taking control of of your uh, your own destiny rather than leaving it up to someone else. Yeah, like that, and. Um, <clears throat> You know, the first thing that I realized was that all of the things that are available to a corporate guy or just kind of a person that that works a regular job, you can look through the the newspaper through the want ads, but there's not really so many want ads for musicians. Right. You can't really go downtown, you know, to the career fair and, and, you know, hopefully get a job with a great company called Mick Jagger. That just doesn't, (laughs) you know, that 
it doesn't really work like that. So right, right. I've always ex- I've always said that before. You know, about being a musician. You know, if you wanted to be a professional baseball player, if you were really good, you would just go try out for the team, and if you were that good, you would make it. You know, there's no right. there's no band tryouts for you know for like you know for the Stones or for John Mayer or whatever. That's right, and. So the, the, the first hard lesson that I learned, you know, I asked my mother if I could quit working and practice for a year to become a better musician. Right. And, you know, if I was successful at getting a music career going, then I'd be happy. But mm-hmm. if not, you know, I'd go to grad school. And my mom just heard grad school. So she's like, come on home, come on home. And right. uh, so I got up from my desk at my last job at a bank and I walked out. I don't even think I ever went back and got my check. I just walked out and went home and started practicing. Really? That's, that's the truth. Nice. And uh, the first hard lesson that I learned as a musician was that there's no formal way to get work. Mm-hmm. How do you get someone to hire you? How do you connect with those people that can hire you? And most of all, how do you make them interested in using you for performances? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went around and asked a bunch of musicians, hey, man, how do you get gigs? And that was the second hard lesson that I learned because, you know, a lot of musicians, they're not really uh, wanting to kind of share how they got gigs because right. the truth is that they really don't know how they got there. Right. And, and they, they're not really so so happy to make room for you. <laughs> yeah, they're like, don't worry about how I got this gig. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I really wasn't getting anywhere there. And then, you know, I started just kind of sort of putting my own method together. Uh I would ask enough people and they would say things like what you just mentioned. You know, I just met somebody and we got the gig and, and now we're together and we're playing and it's awesome. And then I was like, well, okay, now how do you, how do you make that happen? How do you, you know, there was no real step-by-step thing that you could do to make it happen yourself. It, it always seemed to be just by luck or by chance. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about several things. I thought, okay, first, uh, what can I do so that if this thing happened by luck or by chance that I was ready? So I just, you know, came up with a little plan. I just, I started thinking about it like a regular job. So I made a list of all of the clubs that were in town where musicians played and where, you know, those, those clubs were paying musicians. Mm-hmm. And, and where, where first, were you? What, what town were you in? I was in Denver. Oh, okay. So it doesn't get any harder than that. There's right. no musical, there's no music industry there. So anything you get, you, you're going to be scraping by. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely different from L.A. where, you know, you can scrape by for a while and then get on a tour, you know, earning several thousand dollars a week. Right. So I had a simple plan. I went around to all of the clubs that were paying musicians and I just started making a list of all of the songs that those musicians were playing. And I thought. You know, if I know all of these songs, then, you know, I could be paid to play those songs, too, just like that guy could. Sure. You know what I mean? So that was the first thing that I did was I made, you know, I just called it a master list of songs. And then because I was around so much and taking notes, the musician started asking me, hey, you know, what are you doing? Are you, do you write for some newspaper? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And then there was that chance meeting. And so I would just tell them, you know, I'm just making a list of all the songs that you guys play. I'm a musician trying to get started in town. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know any other way to get anybody to listen to me than 
to know all of the songs. So I would just say, sure. you know, I've learned all of the songs that you guys have played, you know, and uh, if I could sit in one time, that'd be great. I'm not, you know, trying to take anybody's gig, but I am trying to get started. And who knows, you know, you may want to take a night off and take your girlfriend out or whatever. Right. But, you know, if you give me, let me play one night, uh, you can keep the money, you know, you can, mm -hmm. you can keep the money. I'll play for free, just show you what it is that I got. And, and we'll go from there. So what that was the first thing that I learned was that knowing the songs definitely gets you an, an opportunity to play with somebody that you want to play with. Because mm -hmm. most gigs happen in a really kind of inconvenient way. Somebody died. Somebody, you know, got arrested. Somebody's in jail. Somebody didn't wake up. They missed their alarm. Right. That's that really is how most gigs happen. Well, man, you, know? you were telling me about the uh, was it the Ricky Martin gig or no uh, or the, no, not the Ricky Martin. The uh, uh, what was the gig where they I, I uh, went out. I, I used to play with a Latin guy called Mark Anthony. Who that's who I was. That's uh, that, that was totally my mistake. That's what it was. It was the Mark Anthony gig. And they called you and they're like, hey, man, can you do the gig like tomorrow? Yeah, that, that's exactly what happened with that. And um, <clears throat> that, that's actually a really good story, too. Yeah, we'll get but into the, that. But keep going on this. I like where this is going. So Sure. So uh, learning the songs, you know, I would since I would come and see those bands so much, eventually some of the people started talking to me. And then when I was able to tell them, hey, you know, I, I learned all of the songs. Then when something happened in those situations, they were like, man, what can we do? Who can we get? And then somebody in the band would be like, hey, man, why don't you call that guy that's been sitting in, sitting here taking notes with the band? I right, mean, dude knows all the songs. Yeah, he right. said he knew all of the songs. Who is he? Did, you know, did he give you a card? No, I have his number or whatever. And then the phone rings. And then, of course, you know, I, I was young and, and really, you know, ambitious. So I, I had the, the, the kill mode. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm going to go kill this, this gig. I'm going to go... I'm going to play. I'm going to be totally cool. But musically speaking, it's going to be authentic. The groove is going to be solid. You know, I've got great gear. I've got great sound. And they're going to really see what it means to have a professional sideman come and sit in with them. And how old were you at the time? Um, when I started doing that, I was 21, maybe 21. 22. And just to clarify, when you said you were in kill mode, it wasn't... Uh, you know, it wasn't like I'm in overplay mode, not no, like I'm going to show all my not. chops mode, you know, definitely not. And I definitely. know, I know that's not what you meant, but I just wanted to clarify for everybody else that it wasn't like, I'm going to go play every lick that I know. Oh yeah. I was, I definitely was one that wanted to demonstrate that not only did I know the recording, like the first time I would go see a band, I would just make a list of the songs mm -hmm. and then I would go and either purchase the CDs or I would borrow some CDs or, 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 or cassette tapes back then. I'm dating myself, cassette tapes and LPs. <laughs> um, but I would get my hands on the material and I would learn it note for note. Mm -hmm. And then I would go back and see the band again. But this time I would know all of the songs. This time I would take notes on how they performed the tune. Did they play it in a different key? Was there, you know, did somebody you know, was the arrangement different? Did they do the bridge twice? Mm -hmm. And and I was also able to really get a look at, okay, how well does this bass player know the tune? Right. Do you see what I mean? How well do these guys really know this music? Um, at that time, I aspired 
to to play on records with with Steve Jordan and Steve Ferroni and and Vinnie Kalayuda. I really wanted to play on records with them. So I felt like knowing the tune by knowing what was actually on the recording that those great musicians played, I could actually get a good feel for how well a guy actually, you know, learned the music on a gig and how well he knew the songs mm-hmm. and how well he played based mm-hmm. on how they played together. Now, so, how many how many how many bands do you think that you knew their show? Oh, wow. By the time I was done, Nick, I probably had 25 or 30 three ring binders full of notes and charts and handwritten charts that I had made Wow! for them. And the list, the list of songs, I mean, you got, you got to understand this went on for, for a couple of years. Right. You know, I did this and by the time I was done, I, I could definitely lay claim to being able to walk on a gig and between 900 and 1100 tunes that's nuts. Yeah, it it really was a lot. And you knew how every band was doing it too. Yeah, I had all the band separate arrangements and everything. But what also was cool, Nick, even though there were that many tunes, you 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 begin to notice something socially. Okay, these musicians and those musicians, they never play together. I never see this guy in in on any gigs with that group of people mm-hmm. or so on and so forth. So I started seeing that socially there was you know, division. It, you know, sometimes it was racial division. Sometimes it was cultural. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I would see a lot of guys that really liked classic rock. Those guys played together. And even though the quality of their musicianship was very high, they never would go play with the jazz guys and the jazz guys would never go play with them. Right. But, but, you know, for me, when I'm looking on these, these, the backs of these CDs, and seeing where Vinny Kaliuta had been playing, I'm finding Vinny Kaliuta on country records. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. I'm finding I'm finding Willie Weeks on on some of my old favorite Donny Hathaway records, but I'm seeing him playing with Vince Gill mm-hmm. on records. Mm-hmm. And so I'm checking that out, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't really see too many people here in Denver that do that. I'm going to be a guy that does that. So that's how my song list got to be so big. I knew all of the country tunes that all the country bands were playing. I knew all the jazz tunes. I knew all the smooth jazz, kind of funky instrumental tunes mm-hmm. that everybody was playing. Classic rock, funk, R&B. I just started learning all those tunes. And then I would, I would be able to go onto the gig. You were speaking about Kill Mode. I would go onto the gig. And I would really be able to not only demonstrate that I knew the tune, you know, precisely like the record, but that I was able to add, you know, in a very musical and disciplined way, you know, more to the song, more energy to the song, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. just just really deliver a quality performance. What I would do also is I would see, you know, if, if I saw Bonnie Raitt, like back at that time, I remember a time where where Nick of Time and. And, and that record was just a really big deal. So people were playing Bonnie Raitt tunes live. But I would watch religiously, you know, the late night shows, Letterman, Arsenio Hall. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I would listen to how those guys, I would record those shows. And I would listen to how those bands played those songs live and compare them to, you know, I didn't have anything to do I, all day. That's all I did was practice 15, right. 20 hours a day, sleep four hours, get up and, and hit it again. But... 
from there, I was able to go and really sort of, de- you know, develop a reputation for being solid and, uh, and just really knowing songs and being able to play like a bass player should play. Hmm. Hmm. So enough of that gets around, you know, then people, now you're kind of in the crew. So now people are reaching out to you because they've heard of you, you know, from friends and stuff. But right. the core problem, you know, when I started this big, long-winded story, sorry. No, that's I wanted this story, man. This is um, this is what we're, this is why you're here. <laughs> the 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 lesson of it all is this. When you when you're a musician and you're trying to get into the scene, it's the same as trying to get into any relationship with someone else. You're a stranger to them. They don't know you. They don't trust you. I mean, if somebody came and knocked on your door and just said, hey, man, I'm a great guy and and I play the drums, would you let him in your house? Probably not. Right. And um, the same thing applies here. So uh, how do you get someone to trust you enough to hire you? Well, the first way is when they're in a pinch, you know, these gigs, they happen very last minute to make sure that they have information about you that's relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're in a pinch, you need somebody, I know all the songs, that's probably the least amount of headache for you. So they call. And then moving on from there, I started thinking about, okay, how how can I get these people to trust me before they actually hear me, before they actually come to a gig or before they let me, you know, sit in or, or have any proof that I actually know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's when it got really interesting for me because I start. I've I've always been kind of a geek. Um, I thought, you know, I'm going to make some recordings of myself playing these songs, and then I'm going to get some videos of the people that that I've worked for. I'm going to get them to say that that it was cool having me on the gig, and uh, I'm going to put all of this on a on a CD where that'll play in their computer. Right. And I just started handing them out, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so all of their questions could be answered about me before they actually had to take a risk and put me on the gig or something like that. Right. Like a digital digital business card. That's exactly right. Yeah. So and that was that was, you know, 92, 93. Wow. Uh, you know, I was messing around with that idea. And then by about in 93, I got really formal with the method and I wanted to try it out. So I sent it to Arsenio Hall. On, a, on his late night show, he was having some contest. Mm-hmm. And I basically just asked him to let me sit in with the band. I didn't want to be in the contest. What was the contest for? It was some sort of talent show. And um, basically, you sent him a video, and if he liked it, he put you on the show doing your thing. So uh, okay. I had made this demo of myself, and I wanted to try it out. So I sent it to him because I knew that someone would see it and watch it. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I don't want to be in the band. I just want to, I don't want to be in the contest. I just want to sit in with the band that night. Right. Can you hire me for a night? Check out all this information. And they did. It took them 19 days. They hired me later. Yeah, I saw, I watched that video. Yeah. So uh, for me. And you were young, man. How old were you? Uh, when I got on Arsenio Hall, I was 25 years old. Yeah. And, um, but that's a late bloomer, man. You know, you see some of these guys on MTV, you know, they're 18, 19. So I was late, I was late to the game, Mm -hmm. but overall I would say that that's the approach. How do you get gigs? The first thing that you can do to get gigs is to know the songs. And most musicians won't learn the songs until there's money on the table. 
the call came. Now I got to get these songs together. Right. But, you know, why not have it be the other way around? Why not get the get the songs together and tell that person that you want to work for that, you know, all of the songs that's probably going to create an opportunity for you at some point. Mm -hmm. The next thing is how do you have the, the, the questions together that they want to have answered in order to trust you enough to put you on the gig? It's cool to have a website with a bunch of general garbage on it, Mm -hmm. but are you speaking specifically to specific needs? Like I remember there was a guy that did, you know, weddings and corporates in town and I couldn't get this guy to, to, to take me serious to, to save my life. And then one day, I, I cracked a joke to him. And uh, I just said, man, I can read anything. <laughs> and I was joking because right. I couldn't read anything. But for whatever reason, it registered in that guy's mind. And it wasn't even a couple of days later. He called me for work for a corporate gig that paid several hundred dollars, which was you know a pretty big score. Mm-hmm that time you know in denver was it a heavy reading gig it well those gigs usually are you know the set list is you know the book is probably thousands of songs i knew a lot of those songs but you know you go on those gigs and they it's geared for the singers because singers sing things in different keys and you know so even though you may know a tune you may have to read it in a different key so i read pretty well at that time and I actually got on the gig and did really well. And, uh, but that's when I, I also got really serious about my reading. Mm-hmm. And just over the years, just really making sure that I had the information together where I could shake hands with somebody and at the first contact, give them all of the information that they need specifically to know to hire me for a specific thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. So that's kind of in a nutshell is it. So now when you when you were in um, when you were in Denver, talk about how it went from playing with these guys in Denver to kind of like stepping up to the next level. And and what was the first like big call that you got? Well, I there was a guy that was in town. He was a smooth jazz saxophone player. And he I knew that he recorded in New York and he recorded in Los Angeles. So in my opinion, that was the guy. If I could get on that guy's gig, that would be how I could get into other cities. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I went to his gig and I wrote notes. I, I probably went to his gig 15 times. He was, only, he was playing locally all the time. So I would go and I would, you know, they introduced the song so you could write the song down. And if I didn't know who the artist was, I would ask him. You know, who's the artist for that song? And then he would tell me. So pretty soon I had recordings of all of those those songs and some of them were pretty hard. So I would learn them by ear. But it was difficult to to be able to to know, Okay, well, is that the arrangement or is that the arrangement? The way it's on the record or or whatever. So I spoke to someone in the band and asked him if I could pay him 200 bucks to borrow the book of music for the gig if I could borrow it overnight. And he did it. He let me do it. So I went to Kinko's. That's when Kinko's was like kind of a big deal. Right. I spent the whole night there copying the book and it was something ridiculous, like 200 or 300 pages. So I went and I copied it and I made my own book. And for about four or five months, you know, I was just memorizing everything in those charts. 
one night he let me sit in. <laughs> I knew it. So I was ready. But that was that's a classic example of making an opportunity for yourself. You know, most people would not have have done as much work as I did, you know, without being offered the gig. So I was willing to do the work. And when I sat in, it, I did a very good job. So when an opening came in the band, you know, he definitely called me first. Sure. So I, I kind of created the opening. But, you know, the principle is, is still the same. Now, when I got on his, on his gig, he was touring around doing some, some shows around the country. He would get on festivals. And from, that, from those festivals, I met, you know, really great musicians. Chuck Loeb I met at that time. This is in the early 90s. So I started doing gigs with Chuck Loeb and uh, Michel Camilo and mm-hmm. some guys on a New York scene. Um, but I had the same approach for all of the gigs, Nick. I, I would learn the tunes first. When I, when I knew that we were going to be in New York and that I was going to be in close proximity to Chuck Loeb, I was a big fan of Chuck Loeb's guitar playing. Mm-hmm. I just bought all of his CDs, went down. You know, back then you could actually go to Tower Records. Right. And, uh, and I bought all of his CDs, and I memorized every single song. Really? And, then, and when I met him, I said, hey, man, I'm a big fan of yours. I, I learned every song of yours. I memorized every song on every one of your records. And, you know, if you ever need anybody, you don't have to have a rehearsal. You could just call me. And Chuck laughed and laughed. He could not believe that. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. So, uh, so, sure enough, you know, a gig came up. Uh, and it was playing in Manhattan, playing on this boat that, you know, goes around smooth jazz kind of cruise that cruised around Manhattan. He called and asked if I would do it. And I went, I knew all the tunes. Nice. Yeah. So that's been my approach that that was my approach for, uh, uh, just about every gig that I've ever gotten. I had that approach. Well, and you know, I think a lot of people now they just, they kind of sit around, you know, would sit around and say, well, why, well, how come the, the gigs aren't coming in? How come the phone's not ringing? And, I guess, you know, they think that all the other people got these gigs by fate and they're, they're just not getting the call. I can answer that question why the phone's not ringing. The phone's not ringing because Mel Brown was over there telling them he knew the song. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <coughs> That's why. There's other people like me, Nick. You know, a lot of guys, this is a good opportunity to clear up some myths about making it. Uh, some guys, you know, they get on to a really good gig and, you know, that ego just, the the ego goes crazy. Right. So you meet a guy soon after he gets on some gig with superstar X and you're like, Hey man, how did you get the gig? And the truth of the matter is that he was probably, he or she was probably hanging out someplace where they could meet those people. And they probably did learn all of the songs and probably were really, really prepared to get into that position. But they're not going to tell you that. So when right. you ask them, hey, man, how did you get on the gig? It's, yeah, man, you know, I was hanging out and, you know, one day phone rang and, well, man, it was J-Lo. And, you know, I was like, yeah, it's all good. I'll go. Right. And it's just kind of like, well, how does that happen to you? The fact of the matter is it, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. 
Well, so, you, I remember having a phone call with you and, you know, you're like, who would you want to play with? And I'm like, I want the John Mayer gig. Like, I'll just put it out there. Like, I totally want that gig. I've always wanted that gig. And his drummer now, I mean, he's he's a great drummer. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. like, well, I don't want to steal the guy's gig. I'm not saying that. But that's if somebody said you can have any gig right now, I would take the John Mayer gig. Sure. And, you know, and you kind of put it in, into perspective. You said, well, what are you doing to get the gig? That's exactly right. And I said, well. I don't know. And he said, you said, well, you're in New York. Those guys are in New York. You know, do yep. you know all the tunes? And I will say, so you and I talked, I guess it was almost a year. It was last June, I think. Cause I, yeah, it was, it was June. I was on my way to a wedding. That's the only reason I remember. And Man, it seems like it was like yesterday. I know. I know that was June. So it was almost a year ago. Uh-huh. And I will say that I learned every single John Mayer tune. Oh, wow. Good job, man. Yeah. Every single one. And even even the live stuff and the trio record stuff. And are you staying up on it? John yeah. Mayer's playing all the time. Video of him leaking on YouTube all yeah. the time. Yep, I got I got uh I, I checked I listen to I listen to it all the time now and get you know, check out YouTube videos and you know, got the newest record and learned that whole thing and you know, learned them all I know I, I know every single tune now. Yeah. And you maintain it. You gotta yeah. stay up on it. Learning it once isn't good enough. Right. You right. know, you got to revisit those things for a mm-hmm. while. You know, I would I would schedule some time, you know, Monday or, or Tuesday or something and revisit the gigs that I really, really wanted. You know, I would try to find some new stuff or, you know, see if there was a different arrangement that someone had their hands on that I could listen to and just have in my arsenal. So right. if I ever was able to shake hands, like if we're talking about John Mayer. You know, I'd be able to shake John Mayer's hand and say, hey, man, I know all of your songs and, and I just think that you're great. If you ever need anybody, I'm serious. I know every one of your songs, all of the arrangements for the last three years. Now, what artist would not be impressed with that? Right. And then if you really show up and deliver the goods like, you know, like a professional, I mean, they're only going to have appreciation for that. Sure. All of the artists that I've worked for where I've shown up. Uh, you know, they've really appreciated that. There's a, there's a great saxophonist called Eric Marienthal, who uh, you could hear him on Chick Corea's electric band records. Mm-hmm. And you could hear this guy everywhere. But he is a fantastic musician, great player, and a really, really nice guy. And the first time that I played with Eric, you know, I had seen him playing. His, he had a smooth jazz gig that he was doing by himself because I knew that I wasn't going to get on Chick Corea's gig ever. John Patitucci was wrecking things, and it was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pass on, on, my, Chick, <laughs> on my Chick Corea ambitions. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but Eric was doing a gig <clears throat> by himself, and it definitely seemed like it was attainable. Mm-hmm. And so there I went. He was on GRP at the time. And I bought every piece of music that I could find that that had Eric Marienthal on it. He had played on Dave Weckl's album. I think I had four or five other records from different people who he had played, who he had, you know, guested on Mm -hmm. and his own CDs. And so I made a book of Eric Marienthal music. I just thought I want to play with Eric Marienthal. Any of these songs is a is a good candidate to get called if if I meet him. So I learned that stuff. And sure enough, you know, I was in L.A. and and he called me. So when I showed up at the gig, I had a three ring binder. It had Eric Marienthal's picture on the front. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm sure he was looking at me like like I was crazy in a way. As a matter of you know, he actually said that. He thought that it was over the top. Mm-hmm. And uh, But then later, you know, he really, he appreciated it as an artist. And he told me that he appreciated it. He was just like, man, that's one of the most professional things that I've ever seen anybody do. And he started doing that himself, which was really cool. But it definitely speaks to, you know, knowing the tunes and being prepared and showing up, you know, ready for the opportunity to be given to you. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. If you haven't already, check out Promark's Select Balance Drumsticks. What they did was take normal standard drumsticks and give players the ability to fine-tune that stick for their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, then you can use the forward balance. It's front-weighted, gives you more power and more speed. And if you're playing jazz or funk or gospel, then you can use the rebound balance, which is rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark. You know that you're getting a quality product because they control the entire process, from the forest to the finished drumstick. And they're also paired by pitch and by weight, so there's no guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. say you're trying to get a gig right and huh. so you learn all these tunes right and sure. so then what do you what do you do with that art like you know i don't want to just necessarily say me with the john mayer gig just any gig like okay i want to play with uh I, I mean i don't know any artist right okay i learned their whole book i got everything i got it i, I know every single tune inside and out live studio arrangements everything mm-hmm. now what well now what do i do you 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 got to network. You got to network yourself into that situation where where those people are. The cool thing it, it's actually harder to get a gig with someone that doesn't have CDs out because right. you can't find out who they're connected to. All you can do is start asking other people. Hey man, do you know him? Do you know him? And then when you find somebody who's like, yeah, I know him, then you start you know trying to find out. Well, where does he hang out? What does he do? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? In a way, it's kind of like being a fan, but it's easier to get connected with an artist that has CDs out because you can grab the CD and in the back of the CD, they're like, I want to thank this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. (laughs) And you're like, I want to hang out with this person, this person, this person. That's exactly right. You know, back when I was trying to, to, to get in, you know, the internet didn't exist. Right. Well, it it existed, but it wasn't as pervasive as Mm. it is now. And, uh, you know, so back then you'd have to find those names and then ask around New York. But now you can grab, you know, a project. Now CDs are gone, but you can still get get access to the credits. You can go on the all music guide and find out who played on certain projects. You know, it could be I always find out 
who are the engineers, who are the, the producers, who are the managers, who are the people, just the regular people that are thanked in the credits. Mm-hmm. And Google is your friend, man. Facebook is your friend. I recently looked at at a at an artist who I just heard him on TV one night and just thought, wow, he sounds fantastic. Turns out that, you know, he's a local guy. He lives here in town. And, uh, you know, it turns out that 140 people that he was connected with, I was already connected with on Facebook. And some of them were very close to him. And so I just figured out who those people were. And once I had learned, I'd learned that person's songs, I sent an email to that person just saying, hey, I'm in town and I'm a bass player. I know that he does shows around, but I know every song on every one of his records and I have a lot of the videos from the live performances. So if he ever gets caught, let him know that I'm around and that I'll come play. Now, I used to do that before I had ever been on a gig mm-hmm. and, and it used to get people to call. Now, I mean, I've got a pretty long list of credentials. So when I call and tell someone that I'm interested, I, that call comes back pretty quick, usually, right. within, right. usually within the hour. Hey, man, you really, you really want to play. And, um, but the, the, the principle holds true is that it's the easiest way to impress somebody that, you know, that you're interested is to do the work behind the scenes. And that you're willing to invest your time, you know, before getting the gig so that they'll invest their time in you later. Exactly. To make it happen. So to answer your question the short way, you've learned all those tunes. Now what? Now you find out who's connected with that person and the tools are there for you to do it. Google is there. Facebook is there. It's very easy to find out who's close to me and who's connected to me. Mm-hmm. You you sent me a Facebook message. Now we're connected. It really is that easy now. Yeah, and um, it, it, it. I think in the past, if somebody was famous, I'm not famous, so I can't relate to that. But if someone was famous and someone else was not, and the not famous person wanted to connect with the famous person, in the past it would be like, well, what do I say to him? I don't really know what to say to him, and blah 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 blah. But now with social media, you know, the famous person is their tweets are, are showing up right next to mine. Sure. So a whole lot of that mystique that goes along with being famous is, is not so threatening anymore. It levels the playing field. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, I had a guy uh, on Facebook named Nick Ruffini sent me a message on Facebook that just said, hey, man, I really want to ask you some questions about this book you wrote. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened? Well, now we're here talking. Right, so, right. you know, the, the, I guess the main thing is just to, to know in your mind, first of all, it can happen. Right. Don't, don't assume that it can't or won't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you take the first step towards it, you start having success. Right. And, you know, you learn those tunes, you let the person know that you're into doing it. And, you know, it's important to have the goods. You know, if you're if you if you know that your life is full of drama and you know you don't have a car and you know you're not going to be able to make the gig on time or or any of that crap, don't reach out to the artist. Don't don't bring something to somebody that's more of a hassle, you know, than they need. Be a solution. Mm-hmm. Show up and, you know, I'm I'm the musical director for a very large church that has five campuses here. Mm-hmm. Called Central Christian Church. And 
musicians move to town all the time and they find out that I hire the musicians. And there's one, one musician in particular that I hired came to town and said all of the right things. He just sent me a Facebook message. Hey man, I knew, I knew about you in LA. I'm, I moved to town. I've played at church for over 10 years. Uh, I'm organized. I read. I'm, I'm totally accustomed to doing the Saturday night gig until two and being at a, at a six thirty call in the morning, mm-hmm. reach out to me. And I did. And he ended up actually getting, getting hired. So you know, just assume that it can happen. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, and yeah. you know, I, I think that you would agree that, that leveraging connections that you already have to get other connections. Like when I talk to you, you know, well, I got your book and then I'm reading through your book and then I realized that you played with Joey D Francesco, you know, yeah. so when I reached out, I'm like, Hey man, I know that D Francesco is really well. And, you know, and I think that I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that gives it a little bit more authenticity and a little bit more, uh, um, yeah, you know, it, 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 it can, it, it definitely can. I mean, <clears throat> and I mean that without not uh, like name dropping, no, but, no but saying, Hey, I, I know that you're friends with this person. I'm friends with them as well. You know? Yeah. Um, the, I, I think that what it does is there, there's always certain people. I mean, I've been stalked on Facebook. There's, you know, there's, there's a particular person that sends me messages on Facebook that are, that are pretty scary messages. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's funny is if I was famous, I could understand that, but I'm not famous. So I don't understand it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, okay, bro, you, you really are a strange bird, wow. but if you are friends with someone who I'm friends with, chances are you're pretty normal. <laughs> True. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, right. it helps. It it definitely helps in that way. Name dropping doesn't doesn't really help. I've had people you know speak to me and name drop. I'm not really a name dropping. I'm not the name dropping type of person. Right. right. So that's just kind of a turn off. But it definitely helps to have somebody who's trusted, you know, vouch for you. Sure. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was with a, a buddy of mine the other day, and he's a drummer. And uh, he's won a couple Grammy awards, and you know, you nobody knows, you, nobody would know him walking down the street. But, but he's, Who is uh, it? well, do you know Dylan Wissing? No, I don't know Dylan. He played on the uh, on the Alicia Keys uh, "Girl on Fire" record. And, oh, that's uh, cool, man. Yeah, he played on, uh, just played on the uh, like the uh, Drake, the latest Drake record, and so he's one of he he and Ken Lewis uh, work together a lot. Oh, that's excellent. So. But we were we were talking to, you know, we were talking to somebody, and when we got done, he's kind of like, and he said, I never know like how I'm supposed to explain, you know, that I'm a professional, at, you know, but without saying like, oh yeah, I won all these Grammy awards, and you know, and it's like, how do you walk the fine line of saying, listen, I am, you know, if you, especially if you're talking to somebody and you're interested in, I think he was talking to a guy about microphones, you know, about at, sure. a, at a booth, and he's like, well, I want to. I want to let them know that I do this professionally. And it's like everybody who has a recording studio now is like, well, I'm a professional, you know, engineer and I do this and all that, you know? And he's like, how do I, how do I tell them that I'm a professional without tooting my own horn, so to speak, you know? Well, you know, Nick, I have a different philosophy about that. Sometimes you need to cut to the chase because you only have a certain amount of time to cut to the chase. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I recently had a conversation with someone about an endorsement relationship 
Mm-hmm. Now, first, I'm not looking to get anything free. So when when I look for an endorsement relationship, it's because I really do believe in the product. I've already spent money on the product, and I recognize that endorsement relationships happen because the maker of that product believes that they can sell more product by having, you know, Superstar Z having their face on it. Right. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the first thing that I I have credibility if I go talk to somebody about an endorsement relationship because I've already, you know, threw down money. Right. You know, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, the makers of a particular interface that I'm interested in. And I had bought six of them, you know, over the years. I had bought mm-hmm. these things and, and liked them and, and thought that they were cool. And um, I was able to say, look, I bought this, I bought this, I bought this, I bought this. And, and they were totally cool with that. But then, you know, when they were like, well, okay, we know that you're into it, but really how can we sell more product being associated with you? Now, they're not asking you that question. You have to assume that that question is being asked if you, sure. look, if you want an endorsement relationship. And then, you know, you can say, listen, I do a lot of recording. I record for some pretty big names. I have a couple of Grammys. You know, can I give you my information? You check me out. And then if you want to move forward, let me know. But I'll make it very, very cool for you to do so. Right. I always get calls back. Nice. But it's genuine, you know. Right, right. Sometimes you have to blow your own horn because so many people that don't have a right to be blowing a horn are blowing <laughs> their horn. <All> right. <laughs> I shouldn't say they don't have a right. Everybody has a right to think that they're the bomb. Yeah, but, but come on. I mean. But it's you know, it's it's kinda it's kinda hard if you meet you know, if you meet a guitar player that's like rah, 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 then you know, Mike Landau comes in. He's like, yeah, I play a little bit. And that's totally like his demeanor. He'll come in. Right. Yeah, I play, I play a little bit. But you wouldn't know that it was him. Right. You know what I mean? That's a, I, I quoted this in another in another podcast, but there's a uh, I thought it was a Les Paul commercial. And it's actually like a Coors commercial or something where this guy's playing guitar in a bar. And this old guy comes up to him. He's like, hey, man, can I see your guitar? And he's like, oh, you play it? He said, I've been known to play a little. And he plays a little bit. And gives it back to the guy, and he's like, "Oh man, you sound pretty good. What's your name?" And he goes, "It's on your guitar." And it was Les Paul. <laughs> Great commercial. He's like, "Real." He's like, "I've been known to play a few or a few notes." You know, like, that's perfect. Yeah, it's a great commercial. It, it, it seems to be kind of a tricky thing. How do you? How do you? You know, nobody wants to be. You know, pardon my language, the asshole. Sure. The, the guy, you know that, you know, banging on their chest and bragging about who they are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jocko Pastoria said it. It ain't bragging if it's true. Right. And the way that I see it, tell the truth, but do so in a way that's humble and and appropriate for the conversation. Like I wouldn't walk up to you and, and just say out of the blue, you know, I've been on 30 top 10 singles and half of them have been number ones. That's just not something that I would say. Right. <clears throat> but if we were having a conversation about recording and you are asking me, you know, how do you approach this track or blah, blah, blah. And I gave you some information about how I approach the track. And then you would say, well, how do, how do you know that that, that that works? And then I would say, well, look, this is what's happened on recordings that I've been on. So you see what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. You definitely want to be able to, I don't think that there's anything wrong with sharing what you've accomplished if, if the context of the conversation is appropriate. And Absolutely. that's, 
And that's the key is to have an appropriate conversation that, you know, where it's absolutely legitimate and and appropriate to bring that up. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, normally, you know, I, when I if I'm talking to somebody and I'm trying to let them know that I'm not just, you know, a fan or, or some hack, you know, I usually either, tell, you know, I'll say, oh, yeah, I, I, I saw that you did this record with so and so he's a friend of mine or, you know, or, or I oh, I've played with with uh, this person and you've played with that person as well. So then they're like, oh, OK, maybe, you know, maybe this guy isn't isn't a uh isn't a complete amateur, you know, that's, that's exactly right. And it goes to the thing that I was saying, you know, in the beginning of our conversation, just about being a stranger, mm -hmm. any, anytime that you, that you interact with a stranger, you're, you're just trying to find some common ground, common ground to see, okay, is this someone that I know? Is this someone that knows someone that I know? Can I trust this person? Will this, uh, you know, will this interaction evolve into a relationship. I'm looking to find out some things, you know, that will either gain my trust or reinforce the fact that I should get away from this person. Right. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's always awkward. It's never, ever cool having to just sort of figure out whether this stranger person is going to be cool. I mean, when you look at famous people, they, they go to great lengths to keep strangers away from them. Sure. Do you see what I mean? It's because that interaction is just so bizarre mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. figure out if this person is good or bad. You see what I mean? Right. So there's, there's definitely a way to do it that, uh, that's appropriate. And, uh, to, it, it, it's sad that so many people do it wrong. You know, right. they feel they're just trying to get the keys to the city. So they, so they drop a name or two, but it definitely can help. You know, I met mm -hmm. some, I met someone yesterday that actually knew my younger brother. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And, you know, he played music. So we had a, a, a little conversation and it was cool, but he really knew my, my younger brother. Right. And, and so, you know, it was like, oh, okay. You know. So we talked a lot about, about the, the positive things that you've done and, and the, uh, the successes that you had. Let's, I always like to hear some sort of failure that you had or some sort of obstacle that you had to overcome and, and how you got over that because it's definitely not an easy road. No, it, it definitely is not. You know, uh, uh, a failure that I had was I had always wanted to play with this particular uh, smooth jazz guitarist. I'm not going to say who he is because... Uh, because that, that makes it salacious in a way that it takes away from, from the moral of the story, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I had always wanted to work for this particular smooth jazz guitarist. And, you know, I'd learned all of the songs and, and I, you know, let him know that I knew all of the songs and, um, and he actually called me. And so I, I went and I was doing the gig. So we, we, we had a rehearsal you know, before the performances. And there were a couple of other new people on the gig. And unfortunately, the, the, they were not really that prepared. So the band as a whole did not sound that strong. It, it sounded like a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this guy was a pretty potent artist. He, he, was, he was selling a lot of records and, and making a lot of moves. And rightfully so, when he came to the rehearsal and heard how the band sounded, you know, he was like, wow, okay, 
you know, this gig is tomorrow. This, this is not going to happen. Right. So, and, and he fired all of us, all of us newbies. And I was mm. crushed, Nick. I, I was crushed um, because I had done the work, because I had come to the gig, and I've never been fired. That's the only gig in my entire career that I've been fired from. Right. And while I recognized that it wasn't completely me, I was a part of a band that didn't sound good and whatever it was, you know, that I had to contribute mm-hmm. a band, a band is only as strong as the, the person that knows the songs the least and right. has the least ability. It's only as strong as the weakest link. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was a hard lesson to learn that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you practice and no matter what you do, someone or something can happen that's completely out of your control that will render that opportunity, you know, a failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was a failure. And how I came back from that was just accepting that there really wasn't anything that I could have done different. Right. You know, and I think one of the most important things that I learned from that experience was it, it, it translates into other things too, that <clears throat> part of the, the being a really great musician is great when you're around other great musicians. Like say, if you're a really great drummer, if you get, if you're around other great drummers, that's fantastic because great drummers are seeing you be a great drummer and they're like, wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. But when you're a great drummer, the overwhelming majority of people that you're going to deal with are not great drummers. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. So when you sit down behind the kit with a guitar player, a bass player, a singer, and an organ player, they don't know jack about playing the drums. They only know if they like what they hear. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I started looking at it like that, a lot of that failure, the feeling that I had from that failure went away because I realized that by approaching it like that, by realizing that, that I could actually go into a situation and succeed, you know, even if other people around me were failing, like I could find a way to still be successful in those situations. Right. That reminds me yesterday I was watching a Steve Jordan DVD um, he has that, uh, the groove is here DVD. Oh yeah. He's awesome. So, uh, have you, have you worked with Steve at all? I've never worked with no. Steve. man. He is just, well, I, I, I could, I could go on forever about, about his playing. Oh, I love uh, his playing too. It's just, it's just so perfect. But the one thing that he said was that he was talking to, uh, LeVon Helm about it and was saying that playing other instruments playing you know he plays bass and guitar and piano and he said that he real it helped him be a better drummer by realizing what the guitar player wants to hear and what the bass player wants to hear and what the organ player wants to hear so now you're now you're playing to make the song groove rather than you know feed your own ego sort of thing that's right you know that's exactly right and you saying that totally reminded me of that of that dvd that i was watching yeah that's you know, that's I, cool, man. I totally, you know, I totally agree with that. And I think that a lot of people, uh, they they hear what they they hear what they're playing, and they hear what they want to play, and they're like, "Well, this is cool to me," and it's like, "Well, it might not be too cool to the bass player." 
Oh, or the yeah. guy who's trying to sing over over you in the back, you know, playing all your licks. Oh yeah. You know, I had a guy, a really, a really great bass player, tell me one time. He said, "Imagine sitting in the front row, watching you play, but do it while you're playing." And I, I kind of was like, I, I was very dismissive of it at the time because I was young. Mm-hmm. But it really is. It's, it's that's a, it's a funky little trick, man, to sit and listen to yourself. And evaluate what you would want to hear if you were listening right. while you're playing. Mm-hmm. And the effect that it's had on my playing has been unbelievable. Sure. You know, uh, it, it, it really will make you, it forces you to make a decision to mm-hmm. serve the music, to oversee the listening experience. Right. What, is the, what is the audience getting from this performance as a whole not what are they getting from you but what are you doing for this performance as a whole and um there's all kinds of analogies that i can think of that that fit the equation like say if you're you're watching the president speak the president is standing at the podium and he's telling you about you know jobs and whatnot it's one thing to watch him speak but now imagine the president speaking and every time he gets to a certain point where he makes a certain point, some guy comes out from behind him and goes, yeah, yeah, like that. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Eventually, you would be so annoyed. <laughs> like, man, shut up. That's exactly right. And, you know, for being a bass player, sometimes you have to be the podium for that person to speak. Right. Sometimes as the drummer, you got to be the podium. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not all of us, if, if, you know, not all of us can be the speaker. If you, if you go into a room, there's a floor, there's walls, and there may be a really cool picture on the wall. Well, mm-hmm. the reason that the picture is on the wall is because there's a wall for it to be on. Sometimes I got to be the wall. Right. And, and I'm good with that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I'm going to be the best wall that I can be. <laughs> yeah. Now what's, if you had, one piece of uh, one piece of advice or one thing that really really changed your your whole approach that you could share with with musicians that are coming up and trying to do what you did what would it be um one piece of advice just one singular piece of advice overall or yeah or something that really resonated with you and and changed your uh you know sort of like an aha moment for you where you were like man you know it kind of put things into perspective for you or really changed the course of of your career uh, the advice that I would give is that excellence takes practice. Mm-hmm. Excellence takes practice. You cannot become excellent on the fly. And I'll, I'll describe what it is that I mean. I play locally. I live in, in Phoenix. So I play with a lot of local musicians. And, you know, you come across a lot of musicians that they get to the gig, they don't really know the songs. Or they kind of know the music. They kind of knew the way to the club. They kind of are organized, but not really. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But since I have a pretty lengthy resume, there's more than enough situations where these local musicians will come to me and say, hey man, I want to take you to lunch and pick your brain. I want to get to where you are and do what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the first thing that I say to them is excellence takes practice. You've got to practice being excellent. When you knew that you had this performance today, even though the gig may be $150, a $200 gig, you should have practiced being ready for this gig the same way that you would have practiced being ready for Robin Thicke if he called you tomorrow. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The way that you handle your business on this gig today is what it's going to look like to Robin Thicke if he calls you tomorrow. And they always laugh like, oh, no, no, because because if he called, I would be ready. And it's like, really? You you think that you can deliver on that level if that call came to you at two in the morning? Yep, yep, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. And it's like, okay. But hmm. the, the, the truth is, no, you have to practice being prepared for gigs. Right. Every time that I get a gig, every time that I get called for a gig, I treat that gig as if it were Roger Daltrey calling me at the last possible minute. And I practice learning how to be ready. I, I think about it as if I was going to walk into a room and pick up the bass and play with Roger Daltrey the first time. And is he going to be blown away, not only with how well I know the songs, but how well I play the songs? Is he going to get a visual sense that I'm prepared and that his music really matters to me? Right. I'm going to show up. All of that music is going to be written out. He could care less about that. Do you know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. know if he, he wouldn't care if I wrote the, if I'd written the music out. Right, he right. ultimate he ultimately cares. Do I look the part? Do I play the part? And is it good? But mm-hmm. as as a person that provides the service as a side man, I'm definitely looking to show up, and I want for him to feel when he leaves the room after playing with me. I want him to leave the room and say, "Wow!" Now that's how you deliver a service. Mm-hmm. That's that's how that's a good person. That's a person that I want to work with in the future. When I have a situation happen that I need somebody, that's the kind of person that I want. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? I he to- makes it, absolutely one hundred percent. Or even if he doesn't like the way that I play and it doesn't work out, he may think, "Well, I didn't really like how he played, but man, he was really prepared. He was totally professional." Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I do. It's, you can't be all things to all people, right? But you you can be excellent at what you do. Mm-hmm. And so that's the advice that I would say. Uh, practice being excellent. Be excellent on the gig that doesn't matter because when the gig does matter, you'll already be ready for it. Right. That's great knowledge, man. The great, great advice. And <laughs> I mean, everything that you shared today is, is – Amazing. And all this, all this, I mean, it gets in, even into further detail in your book from zero to Sideman, and they can pick that up at, right at melbrown.com, right? It's uh, melbrown.net. But, but Mel, melbrown.net. Okay. There, if you buy the, the book from my website, it's the price of a private lesson. It's $40. Okay. But <clears throat> the reason that the book is $40 on my website is because there's a DVD demo of mine in the book. Oh, Okay. If you buy the the book on Amazon, it's it's half the money, eighteen bucks, twenty two dollars. You could find them over there, but um, but there's no DVD in that book. So, oh, okay. you know, I'm only one person, so it costs me money to go out and buy the DVDs and then lightscribe them all and do all that stuff. But that's why it sure. costs that. 
just so people know. It's well worth the money, man. I've read that book. I, I mean, I've read it twice and probably looked over it about five or seven more times. So it definitely is a wealth of knowledge. And we're actually, we're going to give one, one book away. So if you sign up for the mailing list between, uh, between when this airs and a week from when it airs, so it'll be a week span, sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com and you'll get an autographed copy from zero to Sideman from my man, Mel Brown. And Mel, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really do appreciate it. The, the knowledge is invaluable and I know the listeners appreciate it as well. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. And good luck to all you players out there. Maybe I'll see you on the gig. Be sure and say hey. Nice. Mel, thanks again, man. I'll be talking to you soon. All right, Nick. See you later. See you. There you have it. The one and only Mel Brown. I hope that I know that you got some information out of that because I remember reading his book and having this conversation with him, having phone calls with him, and it just totally opened up my eyes about how you can go out and get gigs, how you can network with people. And because I hear it all the time, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to meet people. I don't know how to to get gigs with other people. And I have my own strategies, which I talk about a lot uh, through the Bigger Better Gigs course. If you want to check that out, it's just biggerbettergigs.com. And uh, so I have my my way of doing it and, and using my way and Mel's way, putting those two together, I think makes you unstoppable. So I hope you got a ton of information out of this and I hope that you put it into practice because, you know, as they say, too much learning and not enough doing makes you an overmotivated underachiever. So put this stuff into action, please, and let me know how you make out. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.